Well, hello, Bethany Community Church. Greetings, everyone. My name is Abby Odio. I am the pastor of Teaching and Formation here at Green Lake. I want to uh, extend a welcome to everyone uh, wherever you're joining us from, and a special welcome to those of you who might uh, be new to our community. I know it's an interesting thing to join a church um, in this season of online worship, but we're truly glad to have you with us, um, part of our family today. We're continuing in a series Pastor Richard launched last week called Good Rain. And it's a timely series given we find ourselves days away from a very contentious election where regardless of your personal politics, the kingdom that is our nation feels very shaky right now, feels very much at stake. And with that reality for many of us comes a sense of fear or anxiety or at times hopelessness or anger. And it's into this context that last week Richard invited us to see that we're called uh, beyond the kingdom that is our nation to this greater, truer, more eternal kingdom, which we talk about as God's kingdom. Sometimes scripture calls it the kingdom of heaven, as we'll see today. We're calling it in this series, the good reign. You might think of uh, the text that we're about to look at this week as sort of part two to last week's part one message. Um, we are going to dive just a bit deeper into this good rain and what it means for each of us. So join me now as we read our scripture for today, which comes from Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32. And in this passage, Jesus is speaking to a crowd using stories, using a series of rich metaphors to describe the nature of this good rain. Here's what Matthew writes. He, Jesus, Put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. Would you please pray with me as we look at God's word together this morning? Jesus, here we are, your church gathered, um, gathered, but sometimes it can just feel like we're sort of limping along these days. It's another week and many of us still carry grief, still carry fear, still carry a deep worry over the state of our world. God, it's in the very midst of where we find ourselves this morning that we indeed ask you to meet us. We ask that by your spirit, by your grace, through your word, we would feel encouraged, encouraged to see that this kingdom that feels like it's closing in in all around us, it's not the kingdom, but indeed your good reign is. God, we thank you that you are our father, that we are your children. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So our scripture this morning comes in the form of one of many parables or stories that Jesus used uh, often in his ministry to shed light on an important truth. I remember growing up, my parents used to read to us uh, kids from this uh, book of short stories called The Book of Virtues. And there was a particular story in that book about a magic string. And as the story went, if you pulled that string a little bit, um, a little bit of time would pass. And so For the main character, uh, this string became kind of a convenient way to move through 
uh, his unpleasant experiences or feelings. He would just give the string a little tug anytime he needed to get through something. Of course, what happened in the story is that this little kid got so used to pulling the string that before he knew it, he was an old man and his life had passed away all too quickly. And I was thinking this week about this notion of parables that Jesus always is using to teach in the gospels. And that story came to mind because it stuck with me. I'll, I'll think of it, you know, when our baby has me up in the middle of the night or when I'm sitting in the dentist chair or uh, anytime I want sort of a small inconvenience to be over, I think of that string and it's almost like without trying, I remind myself, no, like this is the stuff of life. Don't take this for granted. Now, the thing is, my parents could have skipped the story and said, uh, you know, kids, life is precious, even the mundane, the boring, the hard parts. But I doubt if they had just said it to us, that truth would have stuck with me in the same way. In a similar way, Jesus often teaches in story because he's not looking for his message to be understood intellectually so much as he's looking for his message to land in our everyday life, to become part of our real lived experience to be lived again and again by us, his followers, his church. And this little parable of the mustard seed is no exception. As we explore it, what we find is Jesus inviting us to understand, but also to live into its meaning in a new way, to carry it with us, not just to conceptually get what God's reign is about in our minds, but to go with it, to be swept up into it. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider the nature of this lived invitation of this good reign, what it means for us individually and collectively as God's people, through three important images we see in this story. Keeping it real simple today. A tree, a seed, and a bird. A tree, a seed, and a bird. So we begin with this image of a tree. It's a, it's a mustard bush that Jesus said eventually becomes a tree. And as we gain a little bit of context around this notion of a tree, we find a much needed reminder here about the power of God in our world. See, the first century listener would be familiar with this metaphor of tree because trees had been used in the Middle East for centuries as a symbol of status and power and control. You might think of trees as a form of sort of stock imperial propaganda in the ancient world. When a king or ruler wanted to talk about their great, unshakable power, they'd use a tree to make their point. We see this in the book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon describes himself as a world-dominating tree. We see this as well in the array of data that scholars have gathered from ancient Mesopotamia, where the king is often referred to as a tree. Uh, An example of this is the ancient Sumerian royal hymn, which addresses the king this way, O chosen cedar, for thy shadow the country may feel awe. Like the king is at the top. The king is the biggest tree of all. All that's to say, when folks listening to Jesus' teaching heard this particular parable, they would have understood Jesus is making a point about power, about control, about who it is that ultimately holds all things. But what would have been confusing for his listeners was Jesus' strange choice to use a mustard seed, a tree that's not really even a tree, but more of a bush. If Jesus wanted to make a great point about power, he would have certainly gone with a cedar or a stone pine 
or literally anything other than a mustard bush, which at its tallest height reaches a mere eight feet. And yet this is what he chooses. This, is, this should give us pause. What do we make of that? This week, as I was studying for this sermon, I came across a reflection, a blog post written by a woman who expresses confusion over this passage and Jesus's allocation of the mustard bush as a tree. She wrote this, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a gardener. I know a lot about plants. There is no such thing as a mustard tree. What was Christ talking about? I love how she so honestly kind of expresses confusion here. And some theologians actually share this confusion and they've tried to make sense of it. They say things like, Jesus isn't an arborist teaching a science lesson. Let's just like let him get a free pass on this one. But what if, what if our puzzlement over this bush that's not a tree that Jesus chooses is actually the point? What if it wasn't an overlook on Jesus' part, an oversight on Jesus' part, but intentional? What if Jesus used a different kind of tree to purposely confront our assumptions about power and illustrate that Jesus' power as king does not flow through predictable channels? As we see time and time again throughout his life, Jesus is bound by neither the laws of physics and chemistry nor the laws of social obligation and custom that very much dictated the world around him. Rather, Jesus' only obligation is to the mission of his father, a mission that will withstand and ultimately expose even the powerlessness of death. In other words, what if this isn't just a slip up on Jesus' part, but rather he's using this picture of a mustard bush becoming a tree as a way of reminding us that behind this kingdom, this good reign is an utterly powerful and creative and imaginative God. A God who can, if he so desires, take mustard bushes and make them into trees. A God who spoke the world into creation and so creation bends at this God and only this God's will. Friends, I don't know about you, but I could use a reminder this morning that this God exists. A God who, come what may in November, come what may with COVID, will still be God. We started a new little family tradition this past April. Um, We decided we're going to plant a garden. We're going to try to do it on Easter each year. But my husband, Sam, is really the gardener. I tend to sort of bring the optimism and a lot of opinions about what he should and shouldn't do. Um, But this year, he took one of those opinions into account, and he planted a zucchini because I love zucchini. And it was great. Late spring rolled around, and it looked as though these plants were doing quite well. Those of you who know uh, gardening know um, squash kind of develop a flower first before the, the squash grows. And, and so all that was happening. But then something happened that was a little bit surprising. Um, the squash continued to grow beyond what feels like normal, I would say, for even like a healthy zucchini. Um, they just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we were puzzled by this. So we, we kept paying attention, curious about what was going on. And then about a month ago, our zucchini began to turn orange. And that's because they were not zucchini at all. As some of you have probably guessed it, they were pumpkins. (laughs) 
Now hear me out. I don't tell you that story because I believe God turned our zucchini into pumpkin. I think it was more likely science and perhaps a little mix up on behalf of our amateur, though very handsome gardener. But I tell that story rather as a way of igniting our imagination. Because here's the thing, church, if we're not careful, we can become quite formulaic in our understanding of how power manifests itself. And this can become quite discouraging for us. The power, the imagination, the ability of God, it absolutely supersedes our human and imperfect kingdoms, our human and imperfect institutions. As we'll see in just a moment, it's often not big or spectacular like the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, but gritty and unpredictable and surprising. If God wanted his kingdom to come through political institutions, he certainly would have sent a politician, a great cedar tree, if you will. But instead, Jesus challenged all assumptions we hold about power and sent not a politician, but a Jewish carpenter, not a cedar, but a mustard bush, not a zucchini, but a pumpkin. And so it would seem that using this tree, Jesus confronts our expectation of power and says, just because it doesn't look the way you think it will look or come the way you think it will come, don't mistake the utter power and inevitability of God's good reign. Friends, keep the faith. A friend where, a reign where, as Richard talked about last week, hungry people are fed. The evils of racism are named and uprooted and viruses no longer wreak havoc on the vulnerable. People are not dying alone. A good reign where the blessedness of all things is restored. There's this beautiful passage right at the end of Ezekiel chapter 17 where God assures a disheartened and deeply weary people saying this, all the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. See, perhaps Jesus knew little mustard bushes don't become trees without a divine power outside of themselves, without a creative God who takes small things and makes them big. Perhaps this is precisely the point. Some of you will remember about a month ago, um, before the smoke kind of bubble settled in around Seattle, there were ongoing fires in Northern California that turned um, parts of like the San Francisco Bay Area, this eerie orange color. And there was a photo circulating of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and it indeed looked apocalyptic. It looked like it was on fire. Sam and I used to live in the Bay Area, and so we have several uh, friends who are down in that area, and one of them posted that picture uh, online and and with it, the caption, and it was just this kind of utter expression of hopelessness. She wrote, I have no idea where we go from here. And I read that and I looked at that picture. And if I'm being completely honest for a moment, I shared that sentiment. Like the world is literally on fire. Where do we go? And then nudged by God's spirit, I heard that ever so small voice inviting me back to this reality of the good rain. I will make small things grow. I will bring dead things to life. I will, I will, I will turn bushes into trees. Friends, we cling to that. 
And don't mishear me. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about the state of our world. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care about politics or participate in democracy. Absolutely, we should. And it certainly doesn't mean that we should disengage from the work of God's kingdom and say, well, God will work it out in the end. So I can just kind of sit back and do, do my thing. That's not it at all. But this is an invitation to breathe deeply to trust that if my human expectations did not come to pass, God will still be God, that our calling to be steadfast, justice-oriented, peace-bringing, people-loving representatives of Christ in the world will not be changed. God's power will not be threatened. So this, this image of tree invites us to remember that God's power is ultimate, though not often predictable. And then second, this image of the tiny seed invites us to see that the insignificant in God's good reign is actually significant. The insignificant in God's good reign is significant. If we look at uh, the narrative of scripture as a whole, what we find is that often it's not the grand gestures that turn out to be the most impactful, but actually the small faithful acts that have sort of lasting repercussions in God's kingdom. Here in this parable, Jesus encourages the crowd, don't try to manipulate the tree. The end product actually belongs to God. This is what our friends from the Duwamish tribe were saying this morning. The end product belongs to God. When we become distracted by manufacturing a tree, so to speak, it's often more about our ego and wanting to feel significant than it is about faithfully following Christ. The great author, um, George Eliot, who was a woman of tremendous faith, uh, she captures this gospel notion quite poignantly in her classic novel, Middlemarch. She writes this, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. In other words, seeds matter. In other words, the insignificant, the small mustard seed in God's economy is actually quite significant. One of my favorite stories in scripture that illustrates this idea so well is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, early on in that book, we read that um, Ruth is born in a time when the judges ruled. Now that's a really important detail because the time of judges was certainly a low point in Israel's history. God's people were increasingly divided. Their customs and cultural uh, mores are crumbling through cycles of partisanship and division and poor leadership. It was a time of increased family tension and tribalism. And all of that, All of this story is sort of ciphered into a recurring phrase that we see in the last verse of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the world, the context that Ruth is born into. Good thing we have no idea what that's like. And as Ruth's story goes, tragedy strikes her family and her father-in-law and her husband and her husband's brother all die. So the three significant sort of men in her life are gone. And so Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they're left vulnerable, defenseless in this difficult world that is the time of Judges. Now, because Naomi is not from Moab, which is where they were currently living, she decides to return to her home in Bethlehem. This is where her connections are. And for a woman in that day, it would have been her only hope for survival to find connections. And Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who, mind you, is not from Bethlehem, chooses to stick with 
her mother-in-law and journey back with her to Bethlehem. There's this beautiful part in the story where Naomi tries to convince Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to leave her. And the text tells us, but Ruth clung to her. The Hebrew word there is debak, like stuck with her. So Ruth is living in this time of turmoil and division, but she doesn't try to fix the whole thing. But she does, she does plant a seed. She does keep close to her vulnerable and hopeless mother-in-law. She doesn't try to boil the ocean, so to speak, but she says to this woman who's in front of her, I'll stay close to you. I can do that. And she does, and, and she ends up going to Bethlehem and marrying a powerful man named Boaz who is able to protect and to provide for both her and Naomi. Now on the surface, as we read the story, it might feel like kind of a Hallmark movie, like so happy it ended, it ended well. However, if we zoom out, we see this little act on Ruth's part had huge and significant implications. Stick with me on this because it's so important. Some of you will remember if we back up before Ruth's time, there's this really kind of divisive drama that takes place between a man named Abraham and his nephew Lot. And because of this uh, drama, um, you can read all about it in Genesis 13, this group, this family that God has ordained to bless the entire world, it splits over sheep. I have a lot of questions about that, but we'll save that for another time. So fast forward now back to our main character, Ruth, who is actually a descendant of Lot's people. That means that when Ruth sticks with Naomi and goes to Bethlehem, she is actually entering enemy territory. And this means that when she marries a man named Boaz, this is the first time in 1,000 years of biblical history that Abraham's line and Lot's line are reunited. They're brought back together. That God's plan, which has gone off course, comes back on course. In other words, Ruth's small act of clinging to Naomi, what we can easily think is just a story of two brave women, is actually a story of two widowed refugees uniting the entire nation of Israel. It's actually a story of transformation on this worldwide scale. Who would have thought? See, Ruth and Boaz would give birth to a baby named Obed, Obed to Jesse, Jesse to King David. And then jump ahead another thousand years and a king would be born from that very same line. A good reign would be initiated through a king named Jesus. Because she stuck with her. See, this seemingly insignificant was hugely significant. This small act had behind it the creative power of God. The small mustard seed, just universal implications. And I imagine on that day, Ruth did not know that by clinging to her in-law, she was becoming the centerpiece of God's unfolding story in the world, especially in the day of Judges. And as we consider our own calling to, to live um, as people in God's kingdom, bringing about God's good reign, it can be tempting to think that our choices don't count for anything in the big picture. It can be overwhelming, especially in this day, to even think about how I might influence history in a hopeful direction. Seems like we're all just trying to survive right now. And yet Jesus challenges us with this little story to rethink our notion of significance. 
to look at our sphere and plant a seed, to, to reach out to an estranged relative, to speak justice to power in our workplace as we have the chance, to go an extra mile for a coworker or a student or a friend who is struggling. Just a couple weeks ago now, there was an attempted arson at the office building of our uh, Bethany North location. Two individuals attempted uh, to set fire to the space using four Molotov cocktails. Thankfully, those attempts were unsuccessful. Now, it's unclear who these people were or what they were motivated by, but we know that a business called Black Coffee Northwest, a black-owned coffee shop, is in the process of moving into that space. They actually opened their doors yesterday, and they'll share that building with our Bethany North folks. And because of this, this act is rightfully being investigated as a racially motivated or anti-religious hate crime, uh, likely some combination of both. I share that story so you can be praying, but also because this week when Pastor Scott, who leads our North location, showed up to his offices, he was greeted by words of love and hope and encouragement written in sidewalk chalk all across that space. It's also unclear who offered these words, but what is clear is that they were planting a seed. Will sidewalk chalk dismantle racism in our nation and world? By no means. But in the good reign of God, these small acts, they become something. They become significant. Yesterday, this coffee shop opened and friends, the community rallied around them. You had to wait an hour for a cup of coffee. It's significant. These seeds, they matter. And then finally, Jesus ends this short parable by explaining that a mustard bush becomes a tree and then the birds of the air come and they make nests in its branches. So just to recap, the tree reminds us that God, God is powerful and this power comes through unpredictable channels. The seed invites us to see that the, the insignificant is actually significant. And the bird reminds us that God's good reign is an ecosystem, not an empire. God's good reign is an ecosystem, not an empire. See, if we pay close attention to Jesus' teaching, one of the things you'll notice is that many of his stories or miracles, they actually end with sort of widespread flourishing. For instance, when Jesus turns water to wine, many are now able to enjoy the wine. The miracle of the fish and the loaves ends up feeding the masses. Following the parable of the seed, Jesus will tell a story about a little bit of yeast that a woman mixes uh, with three measures of flour. And what might be lost on us reading this in the present day is the striking fact that this yeast will produce enough bread to feed over a hundred people. It's a ton of bread. Some of you sourdough starter folks are out there like, amen. See, something similar is happening here where Jesus tells us that the mustard tree becomes a home for the birds. There's actually um, a Mediterranean mustard bush that is called black mustard. And it's apparently a very invasive plant. It's known for overtaking entire hillsides in a very short amount of time. And while these bushes don't grow to any impressive height, they grow very close together. And these thickets will overtake a space and become home to species and birds functioning in a sense like its own expanding ecosystem. And so Jesus uses this very familiar spreading plant to reveal that his kingdom is more like an ecosystem, more like an ecosystem than an empire. 
See, hearers would have been very familiar with the concept of empire. The crowd gathered around Jesus listening to him would have known all about that word. They were living in one. And in this empire, when a person held power in the form of wealth or social capital or education or title, there was a sense that they sort of needed to double down in order to maintain it, right? Herod, who was the powerful ruler of Rome at the time, is a textbook example of this empire mentality. In an attempt to sort of fortify his leadership and influence, Herod exhausted his people economically and physically by building lavish courts, grand theaters, military fortresses. Towards the end of his reign, Herod became increasingly paranoid and violent, always worried that someone was out to get his power to steal what he had built up, to steal his empire. He even ordered his eldest sons be executed. See, for for Herod, the world was a place to be conquered or else become a victim to it. And while it's easy to sort of dismiss this example because we, I, don't hold the same sort of influence Herod did, the reality is that I see this empire dynamic at work in my life daily. I notice it when I'm quick to offer a harsh critique of another without story or love or context, mostly because I just feel insecure. I notice it when I withhold financial resources instead of being generous with them. When I get into patterns of consumption without thinking about global and environmental impact. When I feel defensive if my privilege is highlighted or brought to my attention, this is the empire mentality. You see it? And what this little story of the mustard bush reminds us is that in God's good reign, we're actually called to something different. See, in an ecosystem, a living thing uses its power not to lord over, but to give life. Not to invite more glory unto itself, but to reveal the glory in all things. Not to grow up, so to speak, but to grow out, to move out into the world. This summer, I read a um, book that got me really inspired to learn more about trees, especially trees in the Pacific Northwest. I'm becoming Richard Dahlstrom. I realize that. It's very Bethany of me. Uh, But in this book, I learned that Douglas firs, when they're about to die, they actually push all their nutrients out through their root system so that those around them will benefit and flourish and live. And friends, I have to tell you, I read those words And I was moved to tears because that picture, that picture is precisely what Jesus did for us on the cross. That moment when he said, I will give so that you might live the empire mentality, it was defeated. This other way, this different way, this life-giving way, it won out. And the good news for you and for me and for all of us living in the times that we do is that We do not live in the grips of the empire, amen. But we're part of an ecosystem. Jesus held the power and he chose to express that power by giving his very life abundant, overflowing, flourishing life. You try to grab more of it. And so first, Today, we move ourselves into that ecosystem story. 
we sit at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, thank you for the life that you give. Thank you that I live not in fear, but I live in your power and your life. And then we sit with that hard question, how will we use our power? What kind of kingdom will we contribute to? How will we use our own voice, our own time, our own money, our own intellect? All that is power, friends. Will we plant seeds that become ecosystem, places for birds to flourish, centers of vitality? We live in a moment where it's easy to look at the political party with whom you disagree and say, you're just trying to build an empire. And given that our institutions are human and flawed and broken, regardless of whose side you're on, you are right. And the reality is that we are not vindicated or redeemed by our politics. In other words, I can vote Democrat and still be living for an empire, not an ecosystem. I can vote Republican and still be living for an empire, not an ecosystem. Church, it's not our politics that determine whether we're living the life of beauty and justice and flourishing that we were created to live, but our Lord, our Lord, only our Lord, Christ on a cross. That's it. Giving, sowing, building into others, that's power. It's a story that you and I, that we church are invited to live again and again and again. That's the good reign. And it's our calling today. It's our calling in this season. May it be so. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you call us to be a part of this good reign. That before we offer anything to the world around us, before we go about the work of planting seeds, we first receive from you the abundance of grace and life and love that you pour into us. Friends, if there are people watching that just need to hear that, hear that. God, may they experience your love today. May they experience your goodness. May they experience the life that you poured out on their behalf. May they know in this empire-like world, they are not alone. And then God, help us to be people of your kingdom. Having called you, Lord, may we look around. May we bring not glory to ourselves, but seek to to show the glory of all things to build into others, to plant seeds, and to trust that behind those seeds is a power that we can only ever imagine. Working out good, bringing about justice, holding this whole thing together. God, this morning, we name and trust that power. We say, that is the kingdom that I wanna be a part of. We pray this in Jesus' name.